your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 23 this morning. We want to look at verses 13 through 24. Woe to the scribes and Pharisees, part one. Next week, Lord willing, part two. Lord, we again thank you for your word. We rejoice in all that we have in Jesus Christ, which is really everything when it's all said and done. And so uh, we pray now that you would minister to our hearts as we consider what you had to say, really, to unbelieving Israel, led by their leaders, and this last message to them, in effect. So, Lord, minister to our hearts. Help us to glean from the text those things you would have us to see as we study together. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you look on the overhead, we have worked our way through the book. The theme of Matthew is Christ the King, and we've come down to the, the section on the formal rejection of the King. You have all kinds of uh, evidences that Jesus is the promised Messiah King to Israel. And led by their leaders, the nation of Israel really rejected Jesus Christ as their, as their Messiah God, as their Messiah King. Well, we have come down to the last week of Christ's earthly ministry. That's where we find ourselves in context here. And on Tuesday of that week, there were a series of challenging interactions between the religious leaders and Christ that took place at the temple. And uh, Christ, of course, handily refuted every one of their challenges. And then when Christ challenged them about the ultimate issue, really, namely, why does David refer to his son, the son of David, messianic title, why does David refer to him as Lord in Psalm 110, verse 1? Well, when asked that question, uh, they could not answer him a word. They didn't know why in the world would David refer to the son of David as his Lord. It stumped them. They didn't have an answer. Well, Christ then proceeded in the long chapter of Matthew 23 to expose and denounce the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the most influential spiritual leaders in the land. And the problem was they were misleading the people. Want to be a spiritual leader? Well, you better make sure you get it right, or by way of application, you might find yourself in Matthew chapter 23 which is not a good place to be. Well, in exposing the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus brought out these points, as we noted last time in, in verses 1 through 10. Uh, they were self-made. They were hypocrites. They were legalistic and unmerciful. They were piously self-promoting, selfish, and self-exalting. And then in summary form... Jesus highlighted a central problem with these scribes and Pharisees, with these esteemed religious leaders, namely that of religious pride. Very proudful people. In uh, Matthew 23, 12, Jesus said in context of talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, whoever exalts himself, which is what they were all about, self-exaltation, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I've often noted that right in the midst of sin, S-I-N, we have I. Right in the middle of pride, P-R-I-D-E, we have I. After the fall of mankind, the first sin highlighted is that of religious pride. This was really the sin of Cain. I mean, he was religious. He believed in God. He brought an offering to worship God. But he did it on his own terms. 
And he brought an offering that really catered to his own prideful rebellion. And when God rejected it and did not accept it, it made him murderously angry. And he took it out on his brother Abel, who had brought the prescribed offering. Now, it is often said that the besetting sin of mankind is pride. And the worst sort of pride is religious pride, which tends to be very legalistic or pharisaical in nature. And it's always hypocritical. It is this hypocritical religious pride that Jesus at great length denounced in Matthew 23. Well, the public ministry of Jesus began with the Beatitudes, as we saw in Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 12, in which Christ outlines what characterizes his people who are blessed. Now, in contrast, his ministry, in effect, as it is coming to a close, with the pronouncement in Matthew 23 of seven woes of judgment, is really speaking judgment against a nation, a religious nation, led by their religious leaders who had hypocritically refused to accept him. It's kind of interesting. We say last words are important words. We have last words to the disciples in the the upper room discourse, as it's called, in in John uh, 14 through 16. But here we really have Christ's last words towards Israel led by their leaders who have been rejecting him largely. There was always a a remnant, but largely had rejected him. Well, people people often speak about the meek and mild Jesus as if he was always some kind of a milquetoast type of a person who would never judge anyone. Uh, They say foolish things like the God of the Old Testament is a different type of God than the God of the New Testament as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And thereby they speak as though they never heard of the book of Revelation. Yes, Jesus was full of grace, but he was also full of truth. And he was perfectly holy. Yes, he is gentle and lowly in heart and long-suffering. But he is also Lord God who demands allegiance and ultimately brings judgment on the rejectors. His ministry was full of grace, but for those rejecting... He also brings judgment, as indicated here in Matthew 23. This is among the most scathing statements of judgment found anywhere in the Bible. And incredibly, it was addressed to the religious leaders that were generally considered to be the most holy people in the land. You see, everything is not always as it appears. After exposing the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus now proceeds to pronounce seven woes of judgment against them with explanations of why given along the way. In denouncing them, Jesus used terms such as hypocrites seven times, son of hell, blind guides, fools, whitewashed tombs, serpent, and brood of vipers. You know what? That's pretty brutal, severe, and scathing. We pick it up at uh, Matthew 23 and verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Here we have the first of the repeated frame, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to them is a pronouncement of judgment, and the key reason for it is because of their hypocrisy. It occurs seven times in Matthew 
23. The sense of woe in the scripture is the language of forlorn misery. Here it is a pronouncement of judgment. And again, the major sin on the part of these religious leaders was their hypocrisy, their prideful hypocrisy. It seems that religious hypocrisy is especially offensive to God. It is singled out here and denounced seven times in Matthew 23. I think Jesus made the point. The word hypocrite comes from the theater where it was used in reference to those who acted out a part. It literally referred to one who wears a mask. These are religious pretenders. They are actors. Hence the word hypocrite, when applied to religious people, is the idea of one who is not sincere, but merely a pretender. They pretend to be godly, but they're not. They are phonies who live double lives. This is especially abominable before God. And the hypocritical sin specifically mentioned here in verse 13 was that they seemed to be all sincere about God's truth, but in fact they had positioned themselves, again, generally as a group, in outright opposition to God's truth as seen in the person of Christ. You see, Christ is the door to the kingdom. You want to get into the kingdom? He said, I am the door. There is no other way in other than through Christ. And really, uh, repentance is an essential part of saving faith. That's why John the Baptist came saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The way to the, into the kingdom is through repentance. Christ said the same thing when he showed up uh, following John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's no other way. And in the rejection of Christ, they not only refused to go in themselves, but they did everything they could to hinder others who were seeking to go in. That's what he says. Verse 13. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They're getting in the way. Hypocritical religionists are consistently the worst enemies to God's truth. In effect, these religious leaders refuse to enter into the door by themselves, or themselves, but they didn't stop there. They then sought to bolt the doors of the kingdom in the faces of those who were seeking to enter in. That's a very serious, it's a very serious matter to not go in yourself. But really, what the thing that's really serious here is they're getting in the way of others. Both are very serious. Now, Jesus taught, as we go back to the Beatitudes, <clears throat> in Matthew 5, verse 3, <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, poor in spirit is the humble, the repentant, those that acknowledge, I don't have anything to offer God. That's not where the Pharisees were. They were very exalted in their own view of themselves. The poor in spirit are the humble who acknowledge that they have nothing to offer God. They're not self-righteous. They're not proud, but rather humbled before the truth of God. Again, this is in outright contrast to the proud Pharisees who refused to humble themselves. They didn't need repentance. No, they're just perfectly fine in their self-righteousness. And thus they refused to enter in. But then in addition, they sought to prevent others from entering in. The Jews looked to their spiritual leaders for direction. 
But when it came to Jesus, they did everything in their power to sway the people against Jesus and thereby hindered them from going in. In Luke chapter 11, verse 52, Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers. Those are the scribes. Those are the, you know, the guys got a doctorate in theology. Uh, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. John MacArthur says, The false leaders took away the key of knowledge by misinterpreting the word of God, by denying the Messiah, by denying the need for repentance, and by denying salvation by grace. Their work-based system had no place for the gospel of grace, which is the only way into the kingdom. You see, the Jews, in seeking to establish their own righteousness, rejected the righteousness provided by God in the person of Christ, as Paul points out in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, speaking of the Jews, they being ignorant of God's righteousness. How do you get right with God? The Jews are ignorant of it. And seeking to establish their own righteousness. That's self-righteousness. We're making ourselves righteous. Look at all the things we do. But in doing so, he says, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Well, what is the righteousness? How do you get right with God? Well, Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You put your faith in Christ and God accounts you as righteous. It's called imputed righteousness. Warren Wiersbe says, The Greek verb indicates people trying to get in who cannot. It's bad enough, he says, to keep yourself out of the kingdom, but worse when you stand in the way of others. Wiersbe is right here, in terms of the grammar. Wiersbe is right here in that there were those seeking to enter, but were being hindered. This, too, is a part of correct theology, by the way. The issue here is human response and human responsibility, which is the great issue here in this context. There were those who were seeking to enter and those hindering. All in the mix here were lost. And so Jesus at this point is pronouncing a woe of judgment on those refusing to enter themselves, outright rejection, And then getting in the way of those, quote, who are entering to go in, as the text says. Now, we know that the scripture teaches that left to ourselves, none seek after God. But as God works in hearts, there is such a thing as, quote, unquote, seeking in the sense that Jesus lays out here. It's for this reason that Hebrews 3, 7 and 8 says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It is true that the natural man cannot of his own perceive the things of God. But if God in conviction reveals the truth to a person, then they are accountable for it. To whom much is given, much is required. D.A. Carson says this, The last controversy, and we're picking up on that here as we go into the woe section, But the last controversy at the end of chapter 22 reveals the real failure the teachers of the law and the Pharisees do not enter the kingdom 
because they refuse to recognize who Jesus is. The son of David who is Lord. When the crowds begin to marvel at Jesus and suggest he may be the Messiah, the authorities do all they can to dissuade them. The sheep of Israel are lost because the shepherds have led them astray. Very strong emphasis on personal accountability, especially in relationship to these leaders who are getting in the way. Now, it's really quite awesome to think that a person can either be a spiritual door opener or a spiritual door closer. A woe of judgment is pronounced on spiritual door closers. Yes, people are responsible for their own decisions, and yet a special judgment of woe is pronounced on those who hinder those who are entering to go in. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you receive greater condemnation. Now, verse 14 is not in the older manuscripts. And for this reason, most Bible scholars agree that this verse is probably an interpolation, which means it was probably later added by a scribe, as derived from Mark 12:40 and also Luke 20, verse 47. However, we want to quickly note that in the other synoptic gospels of Mark and Luke, in this same basic context of the Passion Week, this verse is found there, and therefore the content of it is clearly legitimate. These religious leaders were all about making it look good for self-promotional purposes. I mean, they could pray like crazy in front of widows. This is my spiritual leader. He is such a spiritual man. I think I need to support him. After all, he's telling me I need to. That's what was happening. They made it look really sincere. I mean, they pray, you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Wow, this guy ever stopped praying? They did it in front and to get these widows to contribute money to the ministry. It was all a sham, however, which in reality really was an exploitation of these widows. Instead of praying for the widows, they were really hypocritically praying upon them. And Christ said for this they would receive the greater condemnation. There is an especially hot place in hell for those who exploit God's people, especially the most vulnerable, such as widows. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. How's that for life's work? What did you do with your life? Well, I made a bunch of sons of hell. You can't accuse these scribes and Pharisees, by the way, of being lazy. I mean, they had lots of zeal, but it was misguided and hypocritical. They would travel far and wide to win even one convert, one proselyte. The root of proselyte means to come over. It's the idea of making a convert. And sadly, they were converting them to a false form of legalistic religion instead of true relationship with God. And in their hypocrisy, pretending to be all spiritual when they were not, they yielded ugly fruit in their converts. Those converts ended up becoming more legalistic, more hypocritical than those who had won them over. The Jews had two categories of proselytes. There are those called the proselytes of the gate. 
they were worshipers of the God of Israel, but had not committed themselves to all the rituals and, and religious life of Israel, remained uncircumcised. In the book of Acts, these people are called devout, God-fearing, and God-worshippers. The other category of proselytes were called proselytes of righteousness. They were converts who went all the way in converting to Judaism, including being circumcised if they were men. And it was these proselytes of righteousness that were sought after and are probably in view here and are ironically labeled by Jesus as sons of hell. Jesus said that these once won over tended to become twice as much a son of hell as those converting them. We might call these scribes and Pharisees hell raisers in that they raised up converts to be the sons of hell. Now, it's been stated that the most converted often become the most perverted. And that certainly fits with false conversion that is not biblical. Once they buy in, they're all in. And this applies, for example, to rabid cultists. In Hebrew, the thought of being a child of something is to take on the character of it, to take on the nature of it. To be a child of hell is really the equivalent of being a child of the devil, which ultimately uh, hell was cre created for the devil and his angels. By the way, this is uh, what Jesus called the Pharisees in other places, children of the devil. The word translated hell here is the Greek word Gehenna. It was the name of a valley just south of Jerusalem called Hinnom. This is the place where apostate Israel used to offer up their children to the false god Moloch. King Josiah declared the valley of Hinnom unclean and turned it into a garbage dump where fire and smoke went up continually, thus becoming an apt metaphorical picture of eternal hellfire. Now note in this description, Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees the sons of hell and their converts twice the sons of hell. Their converts were in the same category as sons of hell, but twice as bad. Now, it's really bad when Jesus describes the most religious people in the land as sons of hell. And their converts as twice the sons of hell. That is a really bad description. And you can see why they might have been offended by that a little bit. Imagine coming, you know, before a whole bunch of pastors and say, you sons of hell. <laughs> How would that be received? Probably not very well. I want to talk for a moment about uh, two Greek words translated hell. One is Hades. Hades really refers to the temporary realm of departed spirits. In the Old Testament, you had two compartments related to departed spirits. One was paradise. The other was a place of torments. And uh, <clears throat> so it's the idea of a temporary abode of spirits, of the lost who die. That's, that's where it is today. When somebody dies as a lost person, they go to Hades. They go to the torment section of Hades. Gehenna refers to the eternal state of damnation, what is also called the lake of fire. So let's break this down just a little bit here. In the Old Testament here, Sheol is the Hebrew word. Hades is the New Testament equivalent. Uh, in the, the New Testament Greek word is Hades. Again, you had the saved compartment in the Old Testament called paradise, Abraham's bosom. 
Luke 16. And then you have the, uh, the unsaved compartment of Hades, a place of torments. But it's temporary. This is a temporary holding place until final judgment. At uh, the time of Christ's death and resurrection, I believe he took those Old Testament saints and, and he took them back to heaven. And uh, so that's, that's where the souls of these uh, departed saints, they were in this paradise compartment, but now I think they've moved on up to heaven after the resurrection. We dealt with this at some length when we went through the book of Hebrews. On the other hand, uh, people who are unsaved, when they die, they go, to, they go to Hades. They did in the Old Testament. They went to Sheol, went to Hades. And uh, that's still true to this day. And they stay there until the great white throne judgment. And then that will be the final judgment where they will all be cast in the lake of fire. All those here are going to end up here uh, in the eternal home of the unsaved, the, the lake of fire. The point I want to make this morning is Jesus here is using the word Gehenna, referring ultimately to the eternal lake of fire. They are the sons of Gehenna, the place of eternal damnation. This is what they identify with ultimately. In other words, all the scribes and Pharisees in their state of rejecting Christ are all children of eternal damnation, meaning they are on their way to an eternal hell. That is jarring to say to anyone, but especially to these esteemed religious leaders. Imagine how jarring this must have been. Not only did these religious leaders seek to bolt the door to the kingdom shut, not only did they make hellish converts, but they also played deceptive games regarding vows, turning them into vow breakers and legitimizing it. Legitimizing vow breaking. <laughs> How's that for an abomination? Verse 16, Woe to you blind, blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple is nothing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fine. That's not, no problem. You can, you can break that vow every day of the week. No problem. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had turned holy vows into a travesty. They were playing games with what is sacred before God. They had turned this into such a farce that in Matthew 5, 33-37, Jesus had instructed, Do not swear at all. Now, in the greater context, we believe that Jesus was teaching that vows and swearing should not be a normal part of one's conversation because we should always be truthful as a way of life. Our yes should be yes and our no should be no. We shouldn't have to say, well, I really mean it this time. I swear, I swear, I'm telling the truth. And pe don't people do this all the time? I swear it's true. <laughs> Maybe go back and memorize Matthew 5. Let your yes be yes. You shouldn't have to say, I swear. You should say, well, yes, it's true. That's good. Your, your, your word is your bond. It's the way it is. You shouldn't have to make some vow over it, swear by it. Now, of course, in the bigger picture, there is a place for solemn vows on special occasions, as seen elsewhere as we consider the whole counsel of God rightly divided. But in the normal conversation of life, vows are not needed for people who are people of their word. And that's the kind of people Christ expects his people to be. But these religious Jews had made vowing a constant part of life. And in so doing, they had developed a system that justified 
deceptive vows and really provided a loophole for lying with impunity. Their system came up with two different kinds of oaths. Those that were binding and those that were non-binding. To swear was to promise something before God in which you call on God to hold you accountable for it should you break it. Vows, oaths, or swearing before God are seen as very serious all the way through the Bible. Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and 5. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. Carry, carry through on it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Want to play the part of a fool? Be a vow breaker. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Thus, these religious leaders were really blind to the seriousness of what they were doing. And in that role, claimed to be a guide for others. Therefore, they were really blind guides. Jesus said back in Matthew 15, verse 14, Let them alone, speaking of these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. These religious leaders didn't have spiritual insight. They were blind to God's truth. They claimed it was no, of no significance to swear by the temple, but to swear by the gold of the temple. Now that was serious. That was binding. Brother, did you swear by the temple or did you swear by the gold? That, that, if, if it was by the temple, you're, that's no problem. You're breaking it, no problem. Don't worry about it. But you swore by the gold. Oh, we're going to hold your feet to the fire on that one. As Jesus points out, that was both a logical and a spiritual contradiction to God's truth. The word temple, Greek word naos, here refers specifically to the inner sanctuary, or what is termed the Holy of Holies. In putting the gold of the temple above the inner sanctuary where God's most intimate presence was associated with, this was really a blasphemous thing. It's blasphemy to say, well, it's just swearing by the temple is nothing, by, by the sanctuary, that, that's, like, that's God's intimate presence. It's really a, a put down of God's presence. Again, when we look at the uh, temple here, uh, you had the, the Hirion, the, the outer temple complex, the whole, when, when that word Hirion is used, it refers to the entire temple complex. But he, he's talking in terms of naos, the inner sanctuary. You swear by that, it's no big deal, they said. Jesus says, verse 17, fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Now, some have taken issue with Jesus here, calling these religious leaders fools, when in Matthew 5.22 he said, whoever says you fools shall be in danger of hellfire. Well, to start with, there are different nuances to the word fool. The word fool is the Greek word uh, moros, from which we get our English word moron. It can simply mean senseless one. And whenever we do something really senseless or what we might call stupid, uh, in that, in that sense, we're playing the part of a fool, right? And uh, we all do foolish things on, on that level. 
But the word fool can also have a moral sense, in the sense of designating someone as a stupid, hell-bound rebel. Now, to call someone a fool in this latter sense is really to call them a damned fool. With the sentiment of calling on them to be eternally damned. Now, this is most serious as spelled out by Jesus in Matthew 5. Anyone making damning statements with reference to hell toward their fellow man is actually in danger of hell himself. The sense is that such an action is indicative of those who don't really know God. You know, as Christians, we want people to go to heaven. We're not calling for them to go to hell. There are two issues here. Number one, our hearts are not to be filled with hatred that would desire for people to be damned. Number two, is it is God's prerogative alone to sentence people to hell. God alone is the ultimate judge of all. Now here Jesus is not expressing hatred, but rather the fact of the matter that defines these people. Their actions prove them to be rebel fools who are, as he has just said, sons of hell. As God, Jesus has the authority to make even the most severe of judgment calls. This is not our prerogative, but it is our Lord's. So in calling these people fools and blind, Jesus as the God-man was simply calling it like it is. Jesus then corrects these rebel blind fools saying, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? The premise that the temple could be separated from the gold of the temple with the gold being more important was theologically ridiculous. It was the temple that sanctified, that is set apart as holy, the gold. And not the other way around. The gold related to the temple only had special value by virtue of its connection with the temple. Thus, in their blind folly, they had it exactly backwards. Verse 18, And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Once again, they had it exactly backwards. It is the altar that sanctifies the gift and not the other way around. But the real point is, they cannot be separated. The temple and its gold are a package, as are the altar and the gift placed upon it. To be categorizing vows as either being binding or non-binding, all depending on what one swore by, was indicative of rebel spiritual blindness. You don't find anything like this in the Old Testament scriptures. This is all part of their, their developed system. As Jesus succinctly said, fools and blind. This is what defined them. Verse 20, Therefore he who swears by the altar, swears by it and by all things on it. Again, the point is the altar and its gift cannot be separated. They go together. And then Jesus gets to the bottom line issue. Verse 21. He who swears by the temple swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. All oaths are related and tie back to God. It doesn't matter what you swear by. If you're making an oath at all, it involves God. 
Any vow made before God is sacred and that for which we are accountable. William MacDonald, Jesus pointed out that any oath based on the temple or the things in it was binding. For behind the temple was the one who dwelt in it. Evangelical commentary on the Bible. Not only is the reasoning of verse 16, swearing by the temple is nothing, invalid, but the whole view is flawed, for it takes no account of God, who gives the temple and its contents their meaning. Such fine distinctions offer no escape from the responsibility of oath-keeping or from accountability to God. You see, God doesn't play vow games. You know, when we were kids, we used to uh, play these silly games like, uh, I, had my, I had my fingers crossed behind my back, so I didn't really mean it. You can't really hold me to it. I had my fingers crossed. That's what these religious leaders were doing. They had created vow loopholes so that in their minds they could legitimately be vow breakers and it didn't really matter. And can you see how, how perverted this can become? You know, uh, somebody uh, swears uh, by the gold and then under their breath they say, and, and by the temple. But they just sit quietly to themselves. You know, I, I really, I really am, am I, I was, uh, you know, really uttering uh, by the temple, not by the gold. So I, don't hold me to it. All kinds of games. They could say, oh, I vowed in such a way, but it's not really binding. Jesus is pointing out that such manipulation is actually hypocritical and deceptive folly before God. Really, this practice was deceptive and dishonest. Making insincere vows is really to lie to God and dare Him to hold you accountable. That is really serious stuff. Before God, there's no such thing as an evasive oath. To swear by anything brings God into the equation, and He holds people accountable for whatever they vow. All vows are sacred before God. There is no such thing as game playing when it comes to vows. Only serious consequences. Now, praise the Lord, there is forgiveness for the repentant. But to play games with sacred vows is most serious. Verse 22, And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, and he who sits on it. Again, it seems that they were making a distinction here between swearing by heaven, which supposedly was non-binding, and swearing by the throne of God, which was binding. But Jesus is showing here that the altar, the temple, and heaven all pertain to God. And therefore, making an oath in reference to any of them was tantamount to invoking God. Therefore, all oaths are binding. Again, MacArthur says, in other words, everything involved with the temple and everything involved with heaven involved God. In fact, since God is the creator of everything, to swear by anything at all involves God. That is the point. All swearing in the sense of vows or oaths brings God into the equation. One just can't escape the God factor, the accountability to God factor. You see, vows and God go together. Vows and accountability to God go together. Don't want to be accountable? Don't vow. As Jesus taught in our normal conversation, we should not vow at all. 
We should simply be people of our word, with our yes being yes and our no being no. However, on special solemn occasions, when we do vow, we are vowing before God and are accountable for what we vow to. As God's people, we see vows as sacred and solemn. Only the hypocrite does it. A person's view of God is seen in how serious they take their vows made before God. To show us how serious this is, Christ addresses this in six verses, which is more than any of the other world judgments. I mean, he fleshes this out with more detail than any of the other world judgments. You see, hypocrites don't take their vows before God seriously. Because they don't take God seriously. That's the point. And this is characteristic of the sons of hell. It was indicative of the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees. Who while having tons of religion. Did not have a saving relationship with God. They didn't take God serious. You say, well, what's the proof? Look at their vows. They didn't take their vows seriously. It is most dangerous to play hypocritical games with what is sacred. As Numbers 32, 23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. And in the end, it always does. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Once again, we have the oft-repeated refrain, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And here the charge in relation to them is their inconsistent legalism regarding tithing. Now, pretending to be all spiritual, they tithed even the smallest of the garden herbs, which were used as kitchen spices. Now, in actuality, uh, I think a case can be made that the tithing regulations in the Old Testament had principally in view uh, farm produce, proper. Leviticus 27, 30 says, All the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. Moody Bible Commentary says, The law commanded that virtually everything be tithed to support the Levites. To fund the God-ordained government, which was a theocracy where God directly rules through human intermediaries functioning under the law of Moses, required that the Jews tithe, not just 10%, but really what amounted to somewhere between 23 and 30% of their income. You want, you want to go by a legalistic requirement? I'm expecting 30% from here on in. Today, we're not under the law of Moses. We're under grace. And we're under law. It's one reason I, I don't hammer giving. Now, when we come to a Bible passage, we're going, to we're going to teach the Word of God. But you see, giving is always a matter of worship. And worship is a matter between the individual and God. In the New Testament, we have what is called grace giving. We're not under a legal tithe but are stewards of all that God has given to us. The key text on giving in the New Testament is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which reads, 
But this I say, he who who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Each one, individually. You you give as as you decide. You're, you're, You're in the driver's seat here as you purpose in your heart. Not grudgingly, oh, okay, I'll give it, but I don't really want, oh, okay, but I don't, no, no. Not grudgingly or of necessity. Legally, I'm commanding, no, 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 not of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. God wants cheerful givers who want to give out of worship. This is the principle of grace giving. You don't have to give. You should want to give as a, as a matter of worship. Each one is to give as a purpose in their heart and will reap eternal dividends in accordance with how we have sown. So sparingly, reap sparingly. So bountifully, reap bountifully. So yes, as those living under the law of Moses, Jesus agreed with the technicality of what they were doing in terms of the tithe. But their hypocrisy was found in leaving the weightier, the more important matters of the law left undone. And those weightier matters were such things as justice, mercy, and faith. These legalists majored on the minors while leaving the major things undone. Warren Wiersbe says, It is usually the case that legalists are sticklers for details, but blind blind to great principles. It was this mentality, by the way, that was so concerned about being ceremonially Defiled that they refused to go into Pilate's hall, and yet at the same time called for the condemnation and the, and the killing, the crucifixion of an innocent man, namely our Lord Jesus Christ. Such oversight is glaring and speaks fundamentally to the issue of hypocrisy. And religious hypocrisy is always grossly inconsistent. The legalist is all about rules and regulations, but the weightier matters about character and how we treat people are a lot of times very minor, overlooked. Rules are important, but how you treat people is supremely important. God cares about people. Justice. said, you've overlooked the weight of your man. What? Justice. Everybody wants to talk about justice today, but few want to talk about justice as defined by the Scriptures. Justice is fair treatment in accordance with God's law. The Pharisees were more about exploiting the people than they were about fair treatment. Mercy Mercy shows care for one in need. That's what mercy is. Mercy cares and is sympathetic to those in misery or distress. This was one of the most egregious errors of the scribes and Pharisees. They didn't really care about people, you see. Instead, they were given over to self-serving. Repeatedly, Jesus quoted to the Pharisees, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Quoting from Hosea 6, verse 6. Instead of mercy, they characteristically put heavy legalistic burdens on the shoulders of the people. Christ said, blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. Faith. The Greek word here translated faith in King James, uh, faithfulness in some of the other translations, is the Greek word pistis. And it's a word that can be translated as either faith or faithfulness. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And certainly these religious leaders lacked a God-honoring faith. Habakkuk 2.4 contrasts the proud in soul, and their soul is not right with them, with the just who will live by faith. And certainly the scribes and the Pharisees were full of pride and lacked the saving faith. However, some think the sense here is 
faithfulness. This is a character trait of trustworthiness and dependability. Uh, These people weren't faithful to God and they weren't faithful to uh, what they should be as spiritual leaders. They were self-oriented. God made it clear in the Old Testament really what he was demanding. He has shown you, O man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Yes, they should have kept the law regarding tithing, but an even higher priority was the moral law of caring for the people, which they neglected to do. So Jesus rebukes them for their inconsistency of majoring on the minors and completely neglecting that which mattered most of all. Verse 24, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You see, both the camel and the gnat were both unclean, as seen in Leviticus chapter 11. As self-serving legalists, they strained at a tiny, unclean gnat, but at the same time, metaphorically speaking, they swallowed the largest unclean animal in the, in the whole land, which was that of a camel. Such gross inconsistency. The Pharisees would meticulously strain out the smallest of unclean insects before drinking any liquid. Uh, may I offer you a glass of wine, Mr. Pharisee? Yes, but is it strained? Uh, it has to be strained. Just, just, just saying, I, I'm very concerned about the gnats. Well, in saying they swallow a camel, Jesus was using hyperbole, purposeful exaggeration to make his point. And some think perhaps even even a little element of humorous satire. Jesus' pronouncement of woes on the scribes and Pharisees in our study this far was for these reasons. Notice these woes. What are the scribes and Pharisees? Why? Why? Verse 13. They hinder those entering to go in the kingdom. They exploit the vulnerable widows. They're hell raisers in the sense that they turn converts into twice the sons of hell. Vow breakers, small view of God, inconsistent legalists. But note that the major issue that Jesus had with these religious leaders was their glaring hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy is especially offensive to God. God demands that his people be real. Not self-oriented pretenders. Sometime back, there was a a world-famous Bible teacher. Everyone seemed to sing his praises. I was at meetings where this guy was at. Large meetings. He was a great speaker, and he seemed to have great wisdom. And I one time heard him speak on the radio, and he shared this illustration. After someone had shared a convincing apologetical message at an academic setting, someone asked a learned person what they thought of it. And their response was this. Very, very powerful. But I wonder how he lives in his private life. You know, that really struck me at the time. I wonder how he lives in his private life. You know, that really tells a story. You see, hypocrisy lives a double life. That which is on display for everybody. (laughs) You know, what a spiritual guy. And then behind the scenes, a whole other story. The man who told this story was Ravi Zacharias, who before the time of his death was the most famous Christian apologist in the world, hands down. But then after he died, it came out that he had been living a lie. 
engaging in gross sexual sin on several continents with many women. And if anyone tried to expose him, he did everything in his power to destroy those people. It turned out that Ravi was a great actor. And he did tell great stories. But in reality, he was a moral deviant. And not just for a short period, but for a long time as a way of life, right up until a few months before he died. It was so bad that it is very questionable on the part of many godly leaders today whether Rabbi was ever truly a saved man. He had the head knowledge. But he lived the life of a total hypocrite. Another word for hypocrite in the New Testament is the word liar. You see, hypocrites are liars. And they live a double life. Revelation 21.8 says, All liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. The Bible warns that in the last days, perilous times will come. Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, more hypocritical and more hypocritical, deceiving and being deceived. Jesus warned that many on judgment day will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. Here's the main point. One can fool God none of the time. You can fool people some of the time, but you'll never fool God. Jesus knew the hearts of these religious hypocrites, and he totally dressed them down. He totally exposed them for the phonies they were. David, in describing true repentance, said, Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. And again, he said to God, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. Hypocrisy puts on a pretense, but in contrast, true repentance is honest to God. Well, let me ask you, are you an honest to God believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you merely a religious hypocrite? God help us to be honest to God believers. Let's stand and have our closing song.